I'm Pete Soderling, and welcome to the Zero Prime Podcast, where we explore the early stories of top startups via the experiences of their engineer founders. This week on the show, I chat with Brad Buddha, the co-founder of Census. Brad was previously in the founding team of Track Simple, and prior to Census, he was the co-founder of Meldium. Before we start our interview, I'd like to personally invite you to our next event for the global data community, Data Council Austin. From March 28th to 30th, 2023, I will personally play host to hundreds of attendees, 80 plus top speakers, dozens of startups that are advancing data science, engineering, and AI. Data Council attendees are amazing founders, data scientists, lead engineers, CTOs, heads of data, investors, and community organizers who are all working together to build the future of data. And as a listener to Zero Prime, you can get a special discount off regular tickets by using my promo code PETE20, that's P-E-T-E-2-0. I guarantee that you'll be inspired by the quality of the folks at the event, and I can't wait to see you there. And now, on to the show. So, Brad, welcome to Zero Prime. It's really great to have you join us. Thanks for having me on, Pete. It's uh, great to be here with you again in this new format. So, as you know, we love to talk to engineer founders around here. And I noticed on your GitHub profile, it says that you're an unrepentant Ruby hacker. Does that mean that some people are finally repenting over Ruby? I fear that they are. You know, it's hard when your language goes from being the fastest growing one to the fifth fastest growing one, right? It's a real punch on the, on the chin. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a, I can't remember when I wrote that GitHub profile, but I think there was a meme going around a few years ago that, you know, Ruby is dead and everyone's moved on to TypeScript or Go or Rust or whatever it might be. And so that's probably about the time I wrote that. But it's, you know, someone who spends a lot of time talking to engineers and trying to hire people. There's a lot of Ruby hackers out there. There's a lot of us still. So I, I don't think I'm the last one holding the torch. And you've worked on several startups over the years, which we'll talk about. Um, have you used Ruby in each of the most recent ones? Yes, for the most part. Although there's, there's never one answer these days, right? You know, it's hard to be principled on, on a single language everywhere. But I learned Ruby right around the time I joined my first startup, which was a, a company called Track Simple. I was not a founder there, but I was the, the second engineer. I am um, my now census co-founder, Anton, was actually the first engineer. And he got hired in and they said, sort of, who else should we get? And he said, Brad. So that worked out well for me. But yeah, we used um, the, the language story of Track Simple is actually kind of funny. So Track Simple was an ad tech startup. This would have been around 2008, I think I joined there. And we were building, there's echoes of this in all of the companies I've been involved in. We were building a way to bring together data from different sources. And the different sources in this case were advertising metrics. So how are my campaigns doing on Google search? How are they doing on DoubleClick? How are they doing on all the different ad networks that were popular at the time? I'm not remembering all the names now. And our main product, at least our V1, was this, what we wanted to be a super slick reporting interface, right? We wanted it to be live and interactive and have all these cool point and click features. And we decided at the time that the best software to run a really rich interactive reporting interface in 2008 was ActionScript, aka Flash. So our V1 was in Flash, interestingly enough, with a Java backend that fed in the data. And we ended up basically pivoting pretty quickly away from that, realizing that, you know, to talk about a dead language, even in 2008, sort of the writing was on the wall for Flash or, and ActionScript. Although it's actually a really cool language, ActionScript in particular has some really cool ways to do like UI layout that I think HTML and, and CSS are sorely lacking, but alas, it, it did not survive. So we ended up doing a very quick kind of V1.1 with a Ruby on Rails backend. And that was the first time I wrote Ruby code professionally. Yeah, it was at Trek Simple. And since then, it's been pretty much a straight line of, of Ruby. We used my previous startup, Meldium, was written entirely in Ruby on Rails. And Census is about 98% Ruby with some kind of dark corners of some other languages. Yeah. Amazing. Even today. So 
I mean, obviously, there's a lot of us that have used Ruby for early stage startup projects. And sometimes, you know, ho- hopefully the company grows beyond that, hopefully in, in one sense of, of thinking about the growth. But uh, I, I know that some folks end up removing their Ruby, you know, their monolithic Ruby apps at some point, and maybe some don't. But interesting to hear that you still have pieces of it sticking around. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great language for data integration, right? It sort of has great both standard libraries and gems for interacting with strange HTTP services of all sorts. And it gives you a lot of sort of high-level concepts to sort of declaratively model the way that you expect your dependencies to interact with you, right? So we can sort of say, this is the shape of the response we expect from this API and, and do a little, not that we do a ton of this, but do a little metaprogramming to generate some code to parse that. And the, you know, the biggest knock against Ruby, the performance, is not such a major factor when you are so heavily I.O. bound like we are, right? We spend... I don't know what percentage, but a very high percentage of all census the CPU cycles go to us, you know, sitting on a socket waiting for uh, either a write to be act or, or a read to come through. So that kind of number one complaint, uh, I don't know if it's still the number one complaint, obviously root performance has gotten a lot better in the last few years, but it's still one of the slowest major languages. And I feel like we don't, there's a comparative advantage there where for a, a startup like census, that doesn't matter as much. Got it. And so in terms of preparing yourself as an engineer to start your own company. Did you see this path through Track Simple as an intentional one where you sort of joined, became an earlier engineer on a founding team, but weren't a founder necessarily in, in title or in pressure, perhaps? Talk to us about how you kind of um, shaped that in your own career and, and what the road was to becoming a founder for you. Yeah, it, it was a pretty intentional step, although I think the intent came a little bit from Anton, frankly, selling me on that path. You know, when he and I knew each other because we worked together at AWS and we were one of the first two engineers who worked on CloudWatch, which is something I say, and I don't mean to take that away from the team that actually shipped CloudWatch because we sort of left when it was still like a pile of API docs and a very, very rough prototype. But, you know, we had worked together on that project and Anton was, was very entrepreneurial. Um, he had been doing some kind of side project that actually ended up him meeting Boris, which is another story. But he, you know, sort of convinced me. He said, Brad, like, you know, you want to be starting a company. This is a good way to, to learn how to do that, right? Is to not have to go, you know, as a 25 or 26 year old, whatever I was, like, go trying to meet investors and raise money from people you don't know and come up with a product idea. That's all done. The money's here. You know, there's strong leadership in place. It was, in fact, one of my old bosses who was running Trek Simple. And all we got to do is go write code and we can sort of be in the startup without taking the sort of cost and risk of the startup. Uh, and that argument was obviously very compelling to me. Um, and I do think it was well reasoned in retrospect. It's sort of an easy thing to say. Like I always have a little bit of skepticism of these kind of like trick shot type plans. Of like we'll do X in order to do Y, but that was very much an example of one of those working out. We'll do X in order to do Y. And I think, you know, the fact that I had came from a pretty entrepreneurial family, both my, my mom, my dad, my stepdad had all started companies at various points in time, not tech companies, but you know, that doesn't make it any easier or harder. And so I think that that helped as well, right? That I came from that background and that I was very much coached by my mom to say sort of like, you have to take risks and you want to control your own destiny and don't just go work for someone else. Um, even though I was very fat and happy at Amazon doing kind of cool work and, and being well compensated for it. Yeah, I identify. Um, I had a particularly entrepreneurial, creative family. And my father was self-employed after becoming a civil engineer and being a mining engineer for the first part of his career. Then he switched gears and you know started a few different companies. And they were not tech companies either, but I, I guess I didn't really appreciate until later on in my own entrepreneurial career, seeing how much that really affected me and gave me that foundation to, to really get out there and take those risks. And and take that jump, as you say. Yeah, I think that's a super common story. I feel like I've, I know they try to do these surveys of what makes for good founders, what makes for good entrepreneurs. But I feel like that is a very common thread that I hear from a lot of founders is, you know, my, my parents or a close family member or a sibling or whatever was entrepreneurial and showed me that this could be done, that this is sort of a normal choice, not a weird choice to start something of your own. 
So you ended up starting a company called Meldium. And I think some of that team ended up starting Census, which you're working on now. I'm curious, like, like, what's the difference between company one and company two? Like, how did things sort of track and change over time in terms of your own personal experience and, and being a founder then of two different companies over the past, what, six years or so, I, I assume? Yeah, um, it's a great question. Yeah, Meldium was founded in 2012. So we're actually almost a decade out from that, or more than a decade. Wow. But the experiences were, you know, more similar than different. But like the first time you do anything, right? As someone with little kids, I find myself saying this a lot. The first time you do anything, you're not going to be very good at it. And we made, you know, a lot of sort of boneheaded mistakes, right? Or just, you know, things we didn't know about starting Meldium. You know, I think especially as so it was three engineers starting the company it was me and Anton and Boris who are, th- who are three quarters of the current census founding team and we sort of had product brain if you build it they will come right? all you have to do is build an amazing piece of software and obviously it will sell itself as so many engineering founders do and we learned like so many engineering founders do that that is almost never the case that you know you need to learn how to talk to your customers how to figure out what their problems are especially in a space like that right Meldium was a single sign-on product right it was sort of trying to be a combination of kind of think Okta plus one password all in one right so you had your password vault and you had a single sign-on and provisioning for that matter too. Like you could sort of automatically provision and deprovision users from SaaS, which was something that we all have today, but was pretty novel in 2012. And so when you have such a technical kind of IT focused product, like you're immediately going to be selling it to someone who is already swimming in other products, right? It's again, back to the theme, it's an integrations product, uh, like all the products I've done. And you're going to have someone who's got a bunch of things they need to integrate with. And you can't just sort of wave your magic tech wand and wave those all away and say, oh, those are wrong or bad or, or, you know, get rid of them. You have to be extremely pragmatic when you're selling an integrations or an aggregation product. And that involves a lot of times, like it's a cliche, right? Talk to your customers, but like, really talk to your customers, sit down with them for half a day and watch what they do. That was the kind of stuff that we learned how to do at Meldia. We probably learned a little too late, but obviously we learned, you know, still early enough that it didn't, it didn't create the company. Um, so that's the one thing that immediately comes to mind, right? And census couldn't have been more different. Like census, if anything was, we spent a lot of arguably too much time in the first year of census talking to customers because we just were like a little hesitant about committing to any one idea. And I think there's sort of a sophomore album, second system syndrome there thing, right? Where you like, now you remember all the mistakes you made from the first startup. You don't want to repeat any of those. Of course, you make the opposite and different set of mistakes instead. But things do eventually click, right? It, it happened with all three of those companies where you sort of find the customer who's who's a very representative of your problem and, and who feels it and who like has a burning need for it. And you find the piece of technology that will solve that at least in a very minimal way. And that first build is exhilarating, right? Like the first version, when we finally, after throwing out a bunch of very random ideas that look nothing like reverse ETL, when we finally committed to the census product that more or less as it exists today and in fact some of the same code, I think it was three weeks from the time we said, okay, this is our customer, this is their problem, this is what we need to build to us building that and shipping them sort of a, a usable V1. And of course, it was a much longer journey to get to customer two, three, and four. But that first kind of initial like burst of creativity and like very tight working with the customer and showing them, look, we solved your problem is like nothing else. It feels incredible. I want to ask you about that because if you were four founders, I mean, I remember I met Sean, your other co-founder in those days, maybe 2018, I'm guessing or something and 2017, actually, maybe. And he was telling me about the, the customers that he was talking to. And so if all four founders talking to different people, how long was that period? And if you're all engineers, how do you like prevent yourselves from building stuff or overbuilding stuff when you're all sort of in this amorphous customer discovery process? How long did that process take? And, and what's it like to do that with four people? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think it depends on how you kind of measure the, the time. But you know, when, when we first started working together, all four, I think it was early 2017, if I'm right on the timeline, and I would have to go check my notes. 
And we definitely had, even though all four of us are engineers, we definitely sort of divided into two camps of Brad and Anton being the ones who are more engineering and Sean and Boris being the ones who are better at talking to customers, frankly, right? And who have more connections, right? One of Sean's greatest superpowers, I don't know anyone in the world who is more connected than he is. Like, it's a running joke about he'll walk down the streets in San Francisco or Seattle or Austin and people will say, hey, Sean, it happens all the time. So that's one of the superpowers he brought to the team, right? Is is someone who is highly technical, who's wrote a ton of code and who can also like has incredible Rolodex and knows everyone and what problems they have. Um, And so that, I wouldn't say that we didn't write any code, right? We did do a couple of sort of like, okay, we talked to a customer, we have an idea of what their problem looks like, let's go prototype something up and so we can show it back to them. Because I think we realized pretty early on that we were not the kind of people who were going to do non-functional mockups and show those to customers. We're like, we'll just build the functional version instead. It won't be perfect, it won't be resilient or reliable, but it will sort of, it was almost cheaper for us to build a working prototype than it was for us to ship, you know, a Figma design. And so we did that. Um, but I don't think we ever committed to those, I think was the mistake. And that's what I'm getting at, right? Where we had a few kind of early prototypes of different products, again, that didn't really look much like census that our hearts weren't really in, right? We sort of, you know, we didn't have the, the technical spark. We, maybe we didn't see how we use it ourselves, right? Like it's always easier when you're building something that you can imagine yourself using. And I think we gave kind of like half efforts on a couple of those technical prototypes when maybe we should have pushed a little harder. And, and Or maybe that's just a signal that we didn't have the conviction and we did the right thing by sort of moving on. But somehow you got to the point where you didn't assume that the prototype was the long-term product. Whether that was rightfully or wrongfully, it, it probably required some amount of experience from previous startups to know when to hold them and know when to fold them, so to speak. And presumably you didn't confuse a prototype with what sort of what's going to become the final product of census just because of the, the tepidness maybe from the customers or your own lack of inspiration over that particular prototype or whatever. So you didn't hang on to the prototypes too long, it, it sounds like. No, we didn't. I think... Even if we weren't explicit to ourselves about what we were doing, I think it was implicit in the code, right? I think even the prototypes are, are, like I said, they're always built to sort of tell a story, not necessarily to be super reliable or resilient. But I know that the prototype that we built that turned into census, which was basically a thing that could, you know, sync data from Redshift to Salesforce, it had one source and one destination, was built in a much higher quality way than the previous prototypes were. And I think that we felt at some level that this was the thing, that we had the customer who had conviction, that we had the sense that there was a larger opportunity here and that there was, it's when you have that reaction, another thing that's sort of a founder cliche of like, how does this not exist already? Like, it's like you found gold in the hills. Like, how has nobody built this before? And the answer, of course, is that people have, right? Like, it was just called something else or it was presented in a different way or it was sold in a different way. But that particular combination of the modern data stack is missing this piece and we know how to build it. It just felt like bringing lightning down from Zeus. And I think we built that prototype with a lot more, like I said, conviction and reliability and like the sense that this is going to be iterated on and this is going to be the product, not going to be a throwaway that we use to prove a point. Yeah. And I call this the the key insight that is the reason that an entire startup exists. And sometimes engineers work at some larger a company and generate some key insight around, especially around infrastructure software and some tool that needs to exist because maybe they built it at Netflix or they built it at Airbnb and then they decide to rebuild it again as part of a company and they sort of carry that insight with them. In your case, it sounded like you were sort of, the, the team was intentionally trying to iterate around a space to generate that insight and that once you found it, you you knew that it was a thing and you sort of had that lightning bolt and inspiration that, that made you realize that. And I think a lot of founders, they they miss this. They realize that they have to generate like, they, they don't realize that they have to generate that insight one way or the other. And um, especially in a market of so many competitive products, especially in the data world, where there needs to be a real reason that that product, that their product exists in the face 
of all the other competition. And it's a beautiful thing when that happens. Yeah, I think that, that's a good way to put it, right? I mean, the, that was a big difference between Meldium and Census, right? Meldium wasn't exactly that we built this inside of big code, let's extract it, but it was we felt this pain, right? At previous company at Trek Simple, it had to be someone, we didn't have an IT department, we didn't have a single sign-on system, and there were very few of them that existed at that point anyway, and they were the, they were kind of things that only huge enterprises bought. And so someone, you know, when we brought someone on or terminated them, had to go make sure that they were getting in and out of all the system. And we just felt that pain acutely and sort of looked at each other and said, why doesn't this exist? And so that was very much like a, we were building it for our previous selves startup. Census was not necessarily that, right? Census was, I think, thematically, we were operating in that space of like, why can't I see kind of a customer 360 view more easily, right? Like, why is it so hard to bring together data from all these systems about one customer? And it definitely came from a conviction around like value of having a best of breed SaaS for every category instead of buying sort of a suite of poorly integrated things. So those two things were sort of like things we believed in, but we weren't necessarily solving a problem for ourselves. And like very specifically, like none of us had really worked with the modern data stack at all before we started Census. We sort of understood it from an academic point of view, and we had friends who worked in the industry. And in fact, um, part of the kind of serendipity here is when we did Meldium, we were actually the same Y Combinator batch as the five trend founders. We didn't really know what they were doing, but we'd sort of become friends with them and you kept track and from a distance and all of a sudden it sort of clicked like, oh, that's what they're working on. That seems really valuable. And it seems like there's a missing piece here kind of right next to them. And so that that all kind of came together at the same time to really make the idea snap into place and say, this is the thing, um, even though it wasn't necessarily a solving a problem that our past selves had had. So tell us what you're most excited about building at Census today and the stuff that you're currently working on, because I, I want to hear an update and sort of know where you guys are at and, and really see your eyes lit up um, in terms of, of what you're working on now. My favorite conversation. Yeah, everyone loves to talk about themselves or their company, right? I think, you know, at Census, I think I see a little bit of a swing back in going from broad to focused. You know, I think a lot of startups go in these kind of cycles of let's zoom really in on a niche and figure out how we can expand that out. And then you sort of have to go back, right? Like once you get too wide, you sort of lose the plot and you got to go back to the niche. And so I think the first kind of three or four years of census were really about everything should be reverse ATL capable. So let's find the data models internally and the product models that sort of let us treat any SaaS application or really any application like a set of tables, right? Or like make it look relational so you can put relational data in it. And I think we're mostly there, you know, you never say never, but like we have something now that has scaled to a hundred or so connectors and we feel like scale to the next thousand. So now it was a good opportunity. And really this work started at, you know, say six or seven months ago, but it's kind of coming to fruition now to zoom back in on a particular set of use cases and sort of say, okay, what kind of more niche focused customer persona really needs this today. And instead of building sort of a Swiss army knife of data integration with anything, the theme at Census has in the last three to six months has been much more about how do we take the marketing user and give them superpowers from the data set, right? And a lot of this shows up in our marketing and in our sort of blog posts so as, as the composable CDP idea, the idea that everyone needs a CDP, but you might not want it to be a monolith. You might want it to be broken up into smaller parts and have it sort of live on the data you already have. Um, and we think Census is obviously an integral part of that. But it's kind of fun to, to zoom back in and instead of give the team a very abstract goal of sort of let's build as many connectors to as many sort of heterogeneous strange systems as possible. Let's now go back again to sit with a customer, which we're doing a lot of again. We've always done that, but I feel like it's been a renewed focus in the last three months and say, where do you feel pain in your workflows? What are you trying to do that you can't do with the data or tools that you have? And where can Census solve that using this new Swiss Army knife we've built, but now just sort of using, I'm going to strain this, this metaphor past its usefulness, but using the one particular blade on that Swiss Army knife in a way that helps you do your job. And I think there's a lot of opportunities to do that in other spaces, right? We've dove into marketing because that sector seems to be very well prepared for making their data more actionable and has always sort of historically been an early adopter sector. 
And we already had a lot of customers in that area. So it was easy to go to them and say, how can we make you more successful? But I think there's room to do that for, for revenue operators, for people who you know work on e-commerce inventory, for finance teams, for operational teams of all sorts. This is just sort of the first chapter in a series of those kind of more focused, verticalized census feature sets. Yeah, it's really interesting how you mentioned that early on, you had to really educate the market into understanding what reverse ETL was and spent a lot of time just sort of in that general space. And now you feel the pendulum has swung and you have the opportunity to go narrower and to zoom in on a particular customer. Do you think that's the nature of many startups? Because other investors, some investors say a startup should start with a wedge and just build a little thing that works for a few users and then slowly build on that. But I guess it's a little bit different when you feel like you're in the state where you might be defining or creating a new market. You don't necessarily have the opportunity or the luxury to do that because you have to you have to educate the market. And that's a bit of a different challenge. Do you see that as well? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that makes us maybe a little different than the, the typical startup is as an integrations tool, right? We sort of always sit, we're bringing together different parts of our customer's organization that wouldn't necessarily talk to each other, right? So we're sort of taking, we are building a technical attachment between a data team and a marketing team. And there needs to be an organizational attachment that comes there too. So I think when we talk about census very much, and, and I'm a strong believer in that philosophy that you said of like a new startup, sh- and we are still a new startup by any measure of the term, should really be hyper-focused on a particular persona and a particular wedge. And I think for us, that was really much a, a data engineering persona. But now we're talking to the counterpart, right? We're talking to the person on the other end of the pipe, right? Sort of is a way of thinking about it and saying, okay, we're, you've got census, we've sold it to your data team and they're using it to send you, you know, insights. Are you getting use out of those? Or how could we sort of not just make the product more useful to you, but make you and your coworker more successful together at your company by using our product to collaborate. So it's an interesting angle, right? Where we're sort of, I do think we're still zoomed in on an individual persona, but now we zoom to the other end of our, our data pipeline and said, who's sitting on the other end of that? Yeah. And I think another thing that comes with that too, is just some degree of scale, right? Like, you know, in the first days, you sort of have enough product engineering and, and go to market people to really do one thing very well. Now that we've built up a team, right? And we've got some expertise that isn't just, you know, the founders, we're able to, to take on more, right? We can sort of continue to deliver great product to those that data persona while also building something for the marketing persona and having those two things sort of tightly integrated. Makes sense. So I'm curious, this is kind of a last question, Brad. How would you say your founder instincts have been shaped and changed over time? My founder instincts? It's a good question. I think all founders have a certain sort of, if you've done this a couple of times, a learned but helpful pessimism, right? Or uh, skepticism, right? Of like, you've seen enough failure and that you have can sort of use that skepticism as a tool without it sort of making you depressed or sad, right? But you just sort of use it as like a everything kind of starts with negative 100 points because um, you know where all the blind alleys are. And so I think that kind of, this is sort of a negative way to put it, but I do think that kind of drives my instincts. And I, and I believe that in a good way, that sort of like, I can look at some new idea, some whether it's within our company or something in the space or you know, even a startup in a different space. And I can sort of point out the reasons why that will fail, but then know that like the metacognition here is like knowing that even though I've enumerated all the reasons that those will fail, that things like this succeed all the time. So like, let's find the reasons that will succeed, right? So you can sort of take a more balanced view there and sort of assess something without too much of the like, rah, rah, all startups will succeed. This is amazing, but also not too much of the fatalism of like a someone who, who hasn't been outside the startup space and says like, oh, this is doomed to fail. It's one person in a garage. How could it ever be anything? Well, everything was one person in a garage once. So I think I've learned to synthesize those two viewpoints a little bit. You know, I think when we were starting census, I was probably too far on the pessimism scale and it was too easy to shoot down my own ideas. And right, that's the sort of 
again, in the sophomore slump, right, coming in of like, we did this successfully once before, how will we ever do it again? And so I think that's one kind of founder instinct that, that pops up. And then the other one, and I don't know if this is what you're getting at or not, but I do think it has become very easy for me to sense when, when we're growing the team, when I'm talking to, you know, engineers or, or customer support people or salespeople or executives who are joining Census to sense the, that entrepreneurial kind of spark in them, right? Like, and it's just, it is still the number one thing we can select for as a company who's still pretty small, where every employee is making sort of an incredible marginal impact on the trajectory of the company. That ability to 20 minute conversation with someone sense out, are you creative, entrepreneurial, curious, or are you looking to sort of earn a wage? And maybe you're competent, maybe you're very technically skilled, but you're not going to you know, have that, that little extra thing that pushes the company to the next level is something where I've really learned. And, and I think my co-founders have really learned to trust their guts on that. We've actually, interestingly, like one of the exercises we did went through at Census this year, and I, I tell the story because I think it illustrates the point, is that we really dramatically shortened our engineering hiring loop because we found that like all of the kind of interviews we we're doing to try to get that, you know, culture signal or whatever you want to call it. We're mostly coming out in that first kind of blink 20 minute interval. Um, you could sort of sense this person is excited and like I said, curious and inquisitive and wants to know about the world and wants to sort of chip in wherever they can, or they're not. And they're probably not going to be a good fit for the small startup. So I think that's an instinct that a lot of entrepreneurs have. Maybe they don't realize they have it of, you know, finding themselves or that same spirit in others and bringing those people onto the team. Even if that the sort of adverse selection there is that a lot of those people will probably leave to go start their own companies, but that's okay, right? Because they're going to make such an impact on your company while they're there. That is absolutely worth having. Well, I'm really glad you ended on hiring and team building because I feel like, you know, in 25 minutes, we just took a whole tour de force of like what it's, start, what it's like to start a company, generate an idea, you know, early tech platforms, finding your first customers, listening to your users, focus, you know, market differentiation and team building. So I don't know. It's pretty great. Really appreciate your insights, Brad. It's been great to see you guys grow over time. And I hope Census isn't the last company that you decide to start. I hope so too. It's hard to imagine anything else at this point. You get so my up as a founder, but it clearly, you know, with me and my co-founders, like that entrepreneurial spark is very alive. And I don't think this will be the last chapter by any means, but hopefully it's one that we're in for a lot, a lot longer. Um, thanks for having me on, Pete. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Talk to you soon. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Zero Prime Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my chat today with Brad Buddha. If you'd like to get in touch with Brad, you can find him on Twitter at Bradley Buddha. That's B-R-A-D-L-E-Y-B-U-D-A. Or you can learn more about his company, Census, at GetCensus.com. If you like hearing from engineer founders on the cutting edge of enterprise startups and developer tools, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the show. We'll see you next time.